Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin. Russia captured three Ukrainian boats and their crews off the coast of Crimea at the weekend, prompting Ukraine to impose martial law in ten border regions and to warn of the threat of full-scale war with Russia. Hannah Murphy asks Henry Foy and Roman Oliarchik what's behind the flare-up. Roman, each side is blaming the other for the clash. What are the Ukrainians saying? The starting position of the Ukrainians is that these coastal waters around Crimea belong to Ukraine because, in their view, the 2014 annexation of Crimea was internationally unrecognized. It was an illegal occupation of Ukrainian territory. This is a position shared by Ukraine's Western backers, the U.S., EU, and NATO included. An additional argument the Ukrainians and the Western backers hold is that there should be free passage, including for military vessels, to the Azov Sea through the Kerch Straits in accordance with a bilateral Ukraine-Russia agreement on usage of these areas from 2003. Russia, despite taking control over Crimea, has itself not pulled out of this agreement. As far as Sunday's incident, the Ukrainian Navy and Ukrainian senior officials say that two of their naval vessels made the same journey earlier this year through the Kerch Straits without being stopped. They were shadowed by Russian vessels during the trip, however. The Ukrainians claim that their three vessels on this Sunday's trip waited for more than three hours for permission to cross under the recently constructed Kerch Bridge. They gave up, turned away, heading into the international waters, after which they claim they were chased by Russian vessels fired upon and seized by force. And Henry, do you have any more details on what the fate of these Ukrainian crews is? And also, what are the Russians saying about why they seized the vessels? There are 24 sailors involved on the three boats. They've all been detained in Crimea. Of those, three are in hospital. Today, the last of those 24 were arranged in court. All 24 have been remanded in custody by a Russian judge until late January. When those three injured sailors are discharged in hospital, they will head straight to jail to join their colleagues. What's critical here is that Russia is charging them with an illegal crossing of the border rather than any war crimes or anything else. That's important because it shows Moscow wants to make this about territory, about who owns what and about who has control of this area. So in a sense, what the Russian authorities are saying is that there's no difference here from maybe people who sneak under a border fence or drive a car through a forest to avoid a checkpoint. In terms of why this occurred, Moscow says that these three boats did not have permission to sail through the strait and then failed to heed demands from the Russian Coast Guard ships to stop. Instead, Moscow says, and as, as Roman just said there, the ships turned towards the open sea and began to flee. So the Russians chased them. The FSB say they threatened to fire if they didn't stop. Then they fired warning shots and then they fired on the boats themselves when these three sailors were injured. And that's when the Russians boarded the boats and brought them back to detention in Kerk in the port in Crimea. So just to be clear, do we know exactly whether the Ukraine ships had strayed into Russian waters or is it up for debate? Well, the key thing here is that, as Roman alluded to, there is no Russian water officially. This 2003 agreement that Kiev and Moscow signed means that both countries have jurisdiction over the Sea of Azov and the Kirk Strait. It belongs to both of them. Now, what has happened since 2014 and the invasion and annexation of Crimea has been a sustained campaign by Moscow to essentially all but rip up that agreement. And Moscow's argument is that while before 2014, both countries had control of one side of the strait each, Now, because Russia owns Crimea, it controls both sides. Therefore, it can say that the water around it belongs to Russia. Of course, as Roman says, the rest of the world sees this annexation of Crimea as illegal and therefore rejects this argument outright. 
Leading up to this, Russia's built this bridge across the strait with just a small gap for ships that reduced the amount of control Ukraine had over access. And then in the spring, Moscow sent a load of Navy ships to the area and saying it needed to protect the bridge. So since then, it's used those boats to stop and search hundreds of Ukrainian ships, freighters, trade boats, again, in the sign of it sort of flexing its muscles, if you like. So really, we should see Sunday's incident not as a one-off, but as sort of another step on this campaign of Moscow asserting its control over this region. And in many ways, it was potentially foreseeable. Roman, how important is the Sea of Azov and the Kerch Strait to the Ukraine economy? It's quite important, but not a death blow, meaning losing control would not be a death blow, given that larger export-import loads are handled by Black Sea ports, mainly in the Odessa region. However, for context, this is a war-scarred country with a very fragile economy. The economy here only started in the past years to grow at 3% levels, following a catastrophic 17% GDP plunge in the immediate aftermath of Russia's 2014 invasion into Crimea and a subsequent fomenting of war in the far eastern industrial regions. It's important to note that Ukraine earns much of its hard currency from exports of steel, grain, and other commodities. If we focus specifically on the Azov Sea, Ukraine has two of its three largest steel mills based at a port called Mariupol, and they have traditionally exported through the Kerch Straits. But as the war in East Ukraine, which is just next door to this port, continues to smolder into a fifth year, and as the Russians, according to Ukrainians, started inspecting and detaining vessels going through the Kerch Straits this year, we're talking about commercial vessels here, to clarify, these steel mills have started to reroute a significant share of their steel exports via rail link to Ukraine's other ports in the Black Sea region. This has triggered bottlenecks that create difficulties for the economy. It increases operating costs. In the end of the day, it hurts margins and business and the economy as a whole. Losses would only increase substantially if Ukraine loses the Azov Sea as an export platform completely. How seriously should we take Petro Poroshenko's warning that a Russian assault on Ukraine is imminent? Not everyone is convinced that there is an imminent threat of a full-blown Russian invasion or a further incursion to grab Ukrainian territory. But if we look at the past four or five years at Russia's actions post-Crimea, it's not something that should be ruled out. In an interview with local media, Ukraine's president, Petro Poroshenko, laid out his evidence. He showed detailed satellite photos of sharp buildups of Russian weaponry and troops just across the eastern borders of Ukraine, on Russian territory, as well as in Crimea, which Russia now controls. Some well-placed sources here in Kiev that we have been speaking with are saying that even if Russia does not invade militarily, it could do serious damage, potentially influencing the outcome of Ukraine's presidential and parliamentary elections next year. These sources are saying that Russia may try, through its current actions, to impose a choking economic blockade of exports to weaken the country's economy, and in turn so voter dissent within the country, which would, as a result, weaken re-election chances of Ukraine's pro-Western leadership, mainly Mr. Petro Poroshenko and his political allies. Henry, is Russia worried at all about ramifications of this? Always difficult to say exactly what the Kremlin's thinking, but it shows really no sign whatsoever of fear that there's going to be a serious backlash. 
I think most sensible observers think it would be a very bad decision for NATO or the US or another Western power to send a big military presence into the Black Sea simply to make a stand against the Russians and potentially ramp this up even more. In terms of potential sanctions, that is something that Ukraine has called for. Some other European powers, notably Poland in recent days, have said that new EU sanctions should be levied. This has obviously been an ongoing conversation for the last four years, whether or not more sanctions are necessary. A week ago, I would have said there was very little chance of fresh EU sanctions between now and, say, the spring. This event on Sunday has made it slightly more likely, but there are still a lot of countries in Europe that are a little tired of the sanctions regime, feel that quite a lot has already been lost in trade with Russia and diplomatic relations. And there are some countries that outright think they should be lifted. And from talking to diplomats here in Moscow, we're told that the number of countries that are behind or supportive of an easing of sanctions on Russia are actually increasing. So hard to say whether or not there will be a backlash from Europe or from NATO. But I think the general feeling here in Moscow is that there's not a huge amount to be afraid of. That was Hannah Murphy talking to Henry Foy and Roman Oliarchik. We'll be back with another news feature tomorrow. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, do take a look at our latest subscription offers at ft.com slash offer. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 